Good morning. Let's begin our sermon time here in prayer. Lord, we thank you for gathering us again this morning to study your word, to grow, to learn. And Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be open, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit move as you desired this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, so we're starting our Roman series, as was mentioned this morning, and this is the second installment of that. Uh, one of the reasons we're doing that as a congregation and, and pastorally is that um, it's really easy to pick a theme and then find the scriptures you already know to fit in with that theme, right? Um, it's harder to take a book of the Bible and cover every verse, which is what we want to do here, because there's a lot of challenging things in the scriptures, and there's a lot of life-giving things in the scriptures, uh, and we want to take you know, Paul's book of Romans here just as a work in and of itself and work through that through the school year. So uh, the truth is that scripture is full of challenging things for us, right? And a lot of times we're tempted to shy away from that uh, or try to explain it away as it applies to our own lives. But we have to remember that God's word is supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to challenge us. Until our lives are 100% redeemed uh, and we're dwelling forever with our creator, We have a need to be challenged. We need Jesus to root out what is not of God in our lives and replace that with his life, his light, his truth. We need more of God's love, more of God's mercy in our lives. So where Kurt left off last week, he was talking about Paul's heart as an apostle and he was talking about Paul's love for the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, right before the reading we saw this morning, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul then does a 180. He's talking about the antithesis to the righteousness of God in the second half. And so today we're talking about Paul's description of God's wrath and the brokenness of humanity, the symptoms that we see in our world all around us that have to do with our idolatry and our uh, tendency to give up what God says is good, our tendency to give up God himself and worship other things. So Paul sort of gives us brackets for this section. Verse 18 and verse 32 uh, kind of serve as a short introduction and a conclusion to what we're talking about here. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That was verse 32, the second part of that. So with these bookends of sort, we can sum up Paul's entire discourse. This is common if you were to write a paper. This is common if you were to read a book. Uh, The beginning and the end often give you a good snapshot of what the middle is going to be like. So in here, we're talking about God's wrath the wickedness uh, that suppresses God's truth in the world. We're talking about the symptoms of humanity exchanging God for idols. We're talking about the consequences of choosing our own vices, our own understanding, and our own path above that of God's. And then the stark reality here that humanity, again and again and again, we wander from God's promises, from God's provision, and his awesome love displayed through Jesus Christ even to the extent where we encourage practices that we know are not of God's heart for humanity. Paul sees humanity here in their tendency and willingness to even cheer on evil. 
I think if Paul were living in our culture today, he would write a very similar letter. So this is a heavy section. It's a challenging section for sure, but I think we can learn and we can grow as we study it. So first I want to talk about Paul's framework, Paul's foundation for writing this. What has happened in Paul's life already? What has happened that he would address things in this nature? What is his history? What is his beliefs? So first, Paul is certainly someone who's keenly aware of his own sinfulness and his prior rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, right? He's keenly aware of his own brokenness. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 considers himself the worst of sinners. That is to say, he believes that his former life as a Pharisee and as a persecutor of Christians was definitely a poor example of what it means to walk in God's righteousness. He thought he was. It turned out he wasn't. Paul here wants his readers to also see the sinfulness in themselves. He's writing to a church in Rome that has issues, that has brokenness, and he's writing to imperfect people, and we are all imperfect people as well. So he wants the reader to know that he is writing from a place of humility. He sees his sin, and he's also writing from a place where he wants other people to open eyes to their reality and their need for a savior. Second, Paul was firmly rooted in Jewish traditions, scriptures, and moral ethical codes that had existed within Judaism since its inception. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He knew the law, he'd studied the law, he did his best to live out the law in every single way. It's likely that he knew the Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature as well as any Jewish scholar of the day. So he's also writing from that place, right? He understands what is written in the scriptures and the importance that those have for God's people. Third, Paul was a Christian believer, right? He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was changed radically. Paul was a Christian believer, and he did not dismiss the Old Testament as many in the early church were tempted to do. Rather, he saw Jesus as the culmination of God's redemptive work in humanity displayed through Jesus Christ and through the life of Christ. So this law from the Old Testament that he was very passionate and zealous for, this law still matters and only Jesus fulfills the law. Only Jesus can really fulfill the law in our lives. And that builds to the point that Paul is trying to make here. And then finally, for Paul's foundations here, Paul is holding followers of Jesus accountable to the gospel and to the righteousness of Christ. This is meant to be persuasive. This letter that he's writing to the Church of Rome is meant to convict and change behavior in many different ways. And so this is why he's writing, to remind, to correct, and to then to encourage this group of Christians in Rome. So in summary, Paul was an expert Jew who put his faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and saw an incredible and immediate transformation. His life for Christ became his entire purpose and calling. He was both the polished Jewish scholar on one hand and the passionate evangelist of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the other. And so we see throughout his letters in the New Testament, so much is displayed about his heart. So much is displayed about his love in Christ. And there's no doubt for us today reading this that he's building towards a case for Jesus and the gospel. He's not building towards a case for something else. So let's walk through this passage now piece by piece. I'm going to do, try really hard to stick to my outline here today because you may need to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> All right. This is my longest outline ever. 
that's why I'm going to stick to it. All right, so let's walk through this passage now, bit by bit, piece by piece. Let's start with verses 18 through 21. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul here believes and communicates that God's work and God's love and God's existence is a plain reality. He knows the history of Israel. He's seen God's work and promises fulfilled time and time again throughout the history of Israel, of which he was a part, of which he was born into. And he sees humanity's terrible disposition to reject God and worship anything else but God. Paul believes that God has made himself so evident in creation, and then time and time again through Israel's history, God is so evident that there's really no excuse for humanity being made in God's likeness to not at least seek and be open to the truth and the wonders of God. Paul says there's no excuse. And so, Paul says, God's wrath is what's being poured out as a result of of sin, as a result of this brokenness and this tendency to turn away from God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how to understand God's wrath throughout this message today. Moving on to verses 22 and 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Again, Paul sees humanity. He sees his culture that he's living in at this time of writing this letter he sees that humanity often views its own understanding of the order of things as wise. We think we're pretty smart. We see a similar sentiment in our culture today. In our culture today, wisdom is seen as relative. It's based wholly on one's experience and feelings rather than some sort of objective truth or deity. And even within Christianity, even many who claim belief in a higher power or or the Christian God tend to put their own understanding or wisdom above that of the scriptures. So the Greco-Roman culture that Paul is writing to, this church in Rome, is well-versed in idols and the worship of idols. In Paul's words, we exchange all of God's goodness and glory for idols. We commit the sin of idolatry over and over again. Paul in this section also uses some creation language and in the coming verses, and he's writing this He's using this language to intentionally make his readers think about Adam and Eve and how they exchanged God's promise of life in the Garden of Eden for the false wisdom and the deceit of the serpent. Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In other words, this created thing looks tasty. It looks like it might make us wise and smart. Perhaps God is holding out on us, so let's eat. This is what Paul is pointing out about humanity. Um, I often describe myself as, I like shiny objects. Yes, this is exactly humanity's problem. We like shiny objects, right? 
Paul's words here in verse 22 and beyond also address not just the creation story, but they address Israel's history. And Psalm 106 says, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot that God, they forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. So again here, Paul is well-versed in his Jewish roots and in Israel's history, and he sees this tendency, this pattern, this evidence throughout time of humanity's sin problem. For Paul, one of the premier sins of his culture in that time is idolatry. And it always has been, really. Doesn't that ring true for our culture as well? So in the remainder of our verses from here on out today, Paul begins to list a variety of sins or symptoms of this idolatry and brokenness that he sees evidence in humanity. The temptation for the church here is to latch on to one or two verses, particularly the ones about sexual sin, and then go proclaim to the world who is sinning and who is not. Uh, Let me be clear, this is not the argument Paul is making here, and this is not what Christ calls us to do as followers of Jesus. The following verses here, starting at verse 24, are Paul's examples to Christians in the early church of how broken humanity is. Paul's point here is not to call out specific sins, but to prove to the reader that all of humanity suffers from this condition and from this brokenness. In other words, we are all sinners and we all have sin in our lives. Romans 3.23, he says a couple chapters down the road, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the argument that Paul is building up to here. And we, all being part of humanity, we share in that sinfulness, we share in the all have sinned and the brokenness that Paul describes. So now verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the phrases that sticks out here is God gave them over. And this phrase occurs three times in our passage today. God has allowed for humanity to act and conduct conduct ourselves in a fashion quite contradictory to God's law as revealed through Israel and quite contradictory to the life of righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. God allows humanity to try to take on an identity that stands in defiance to his life for us in Christ Jesus. God did not force compliance. He did not force righteousness, just as he did not force Adam and Eve away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Humanity had the ability somehow. God gave them over to the choice, right? of whether to follow what was righteous or what was not. So this portion of Paul's, uh, this first portion of Paul's examples of brokenness here, they deal with sexual sins. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18 states that we should flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul could have listed any number of sexual sins in this place, and it would have had a similar impact. In other words, sexual sin comes with consequences to our own bodies. 
So there's this gravity here that Paul begins the list with. He does see a distinction between the sexual sins and the sins against our brothers and sisters. So this will help us better understand what is meant by Paul's use of the phrase wrath of God later on here as well. There are consequences from sin. So Paul here with his foundation in Jewish law and his moral understanding begins by using examples of sexual sin that have plagued humanity since sin entered the world. Paul believes that God has created humanity, he's created us in a certain way, and our physical passions are intended to be used within the framework that God intended based on the natural created order and his law. Paul uses the word natural and unnatural. And for Paul, and for the Judeo-Christian worldview, natural is defined as being according or in step with God's design for creation. Unnatural is anything that is not according to or in step with God's creation. Many of the things in our lives are natural. Many of the things by this definition are unnatural because there is sin in our lives. So when we see things lived out in a way that contradicts the natural order, and the law that God instilled in his people, Paul is saying that that is proof of humanity's brokenness. That is proof of our sin. Paul would say this about Israel's history, about the current Roman Empire, and he would probably say it about our culture today as well. So then Paul continues. He builds on this list, and he adds a whole lot to it in the next section. A whole lot to the symptoms of brokenness. Picking up in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. Again, we see that phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is a pretty extensive list. It's a pretty convicting list. And if you thought the previous few verses didn't apply to you, chances are you might think Paul was also talking about you now, right? How many of us can honestly say that we aren't somehow mentioned, at least by extension, in the list that Paul just gave the church in Rome? It's challenging for sure. And this isn't even an exhaustive list. He could have listed pages and pages of sin that he had partaken in himself and experienced and seen in the world. See, Paul doesn't want his reader to think that sexual sin is the only symptom of idolatry and brokenness. So he continues to show that there are many, many ways that humanity is broken. Paul also talks about this depraved mind that humanity is given over to. Uh, Paul is not painting a picture of humanity that is accidentally or unintentionally walking into sin. Rather, Paul is saying that our minds are so affected by sin to the point that often humanity chooses to do those things and act in that way. Later in this letter, in, in Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul here in chapter 1 is illustrating just how much we need the renewal of our minds. And that that is a work of God. 
and that that is a benefit, a blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. So then what is God's wrath? What is God's wrath? I would, I would argue that growing up, I read a passage like this, and I assumed that the God's wrath we're talking about was God somehow punishing or smiting the people who did the things on this list. I don't think that's Paul's understanding, because we have the offer of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Maybe God did some of that in the Old Testament, but now because Jesus, because the gospel, because the offer of grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, I don't think we can come to that conclusion. So here's what Paul thinks God's wrath is, in my own words. According to Paul, God's wrath for humanity is that we are allowed to reap what we sow. Remember those consequences to the sins. Remember how sin breaks us. It mars us. It wounds us. In other words, when we worship idols, when we break God's law, when we choose sin over righteousness, and when we uphold anything in our lives as more valuable than our triune God, the damage that this does to us is in itself the penalty, at least here on earth. God, who freely gives love and redemption through the cross, allows us to walk a different path. And this is what Paul is painting a picture of in this passage. He's painting a picture of the different path, the one that leads to brokenness and shame and guilt. Paul is not intending somehow to make an exhaustive list here or a moral or ethical code. Rather, he is reaffirming to his readers in stark contrast that humanity is unequivocally broken and in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are symptoms of a broken and a troubled world, symptoms that demand the great physician's love and mercy. So that's all pretty depressing. This is a heavy point that Paul's making. And it would have been easy to skip it and go to Romans 2, but we didn't feel like the Holy Spirit wanted us to do that. Um, So I want to remind you here where Paul is going with this. Remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 is the gospel. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Pause here for a moment and remember what Jesus has done for you. Paul is writing to Christians here who have the same struggles to follow Jesus as us. And Jesus' gospel is for them. Jesus' death and resurrection is the gospel for them, and it is for you, and it is for me too. So the reason I included this James passage this morning is because I think it gives us a good recentering on the gospel. And I think we need to leave every sermon, every message with some hope, right? So James, our passage says this. These are just a couple verses excerpt. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's another summary of the gospel right there. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our neighbors whose lives are evidenced on that list of brokenness and our neighbors who aren't. We in humility see that we all have sinned. We have all broken the law. We are all deserving of God's judgment, but we are all also 
brought freedom from this bondage through the mercy of Jesus Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment in the life of a follower of Jesus. And that is how we should live too. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer that I can realize that more and on a deeper level. So just a few questions to reflect this morning. First question is this. Where do we exchange God for idols in our own lives? Because we do. Where do we exchange God for idols in our own lives? Some of these items on Paul's list might be obvious ways. There might be some more hidden ways too. Second question is this. Where do we need the gospel in our lives? Where do we need that mercy? There are areas of our lives that require God's love and light to transform. There are areas that we just can't transform by ourselves. There are areas where our lives look more like this fallen humanity and less like Jesus. So where do we need our lives to look more like the love of Christ? The gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient for our shortcomings. And that's good news this morning. Where do you need Jesus' love to set you free? And then third and finally, in pertaining to our witness as God's people, where is God calling you to proclaim Jesus' love and show this mercy? Speaking of God's love, telling the story of Jesus Christ is an act of mercy that triumphs over judgment. Building a relationship and getting to know a person whose life looks very different than yours, also an act of mercy. Showing God's perfect love and humility to someone who's not following Jesus, that is also an act of mercy. Paul is wanting us to move in that direction, to leave behind our sinful ways, to begin to heal, to begin to grow, to begin to take on this life of love and mercy. So where is God calling you? Where is God calling us as his people to do that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. Because, Lord, we know we can't escape the fact that we are broken, that we are imperfect, that we all have parts of our lives that are sinful, parts of our lives that don't reflect Jesus Christ. And, Lord, our desire this morning is that those parts that are broken would get smaller, would get healed. Lord, would you save us from ourselves? Would you renew our minds? Would you transform them so that we think, so that we see, so that we act and we believe like Jesus Christ? I believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is powerful and can work in us in that way and can move us in that direction. And Lord, I pray that our lives from here on out would be a journey of experiencing this mercy of Jesus Christ on a whole new level. Lord, would it transform the way that we live? Would our witness as Christians in this broken and confused world, would our witness be one where people see Jesus, people see mercy, people see compassion, and they see love? By your grace, Lord, that's possible. By your grace, we are saved. And by your grace, Lord, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.